stand with me in honor of the word of God as I read Deuteronomy 6, 13 through 14. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Read question number nine with me from the New City Catechism. What does God require in the first, second, and third commandments? First, that we know and trust God as the only true and living God. Second, that we avoid all idolatry and do not worship God improperly. Third, that we treat God's name with fear and reverence, honoring also his word and works. Amen. You may be seated. here today. We have this first, second, and third commandments that we're looking at. Last week we looked at the law of God stated in the Ten Commandments. So we looked at each one of the Ten Commandments and that they were stated. This is what they are. This week we look at the first three and we ask a little more deeply, what do they require? See, you can know the commandment and be able to repeat it, but what this is asking is, can you take a truth from God, apply it to your life, walk around in it, and understand how you can use it in your life? So the commandments of God aren't just for being, I can say them, I can list, you can ask me and I can state the Ten Commandments and repeat them, but it's can you live by them? Can you intricately know uh, what they're actually requiring of you? So that's why the catechisms go back through and say, so now that you know what the law and the commandments the ten that are stated what do they actually require of you and so that is uh, the answer in the uh, catechism question nine was what does God require so this allows the student the pupil whoever you personally learning or who you're discipling to say oh well not having any other gods kind of means this and you start walking around in that truth Walking around means not just knowledge, not just having knowledge. I know the question and I know the answer, but I know how to walk around in that truth. As kids, we try to get our kids to say, now restate that to me in your words. You ever done that? Now tell me what that means in your words. So that's kind of what this is doing. What do these first three commandments require of us? And so you're not just repeating them exactly. Well, they mean don't have any other gods, don't make an idol, and don't take the Lord's name in vain. No, I want you to, like, what maybe it's not just the not of what it's to do, but what is it to do? What are the 
requirements there of it. And Moses is doing that from our text today. That's what he's doing in Deuteronomy 6. He's saying, now we've received the commandments. So in Deuteronomy 5 is the list of the Ten Commandments again. So if you want the list, last week we looked at Exodus 20. And if you want to know the list again, it's in Deuteronomy 5. And so he, he gives the list again. He goes, when we went up and God made the covenant with us on the mountain, here were the commandments he gave us. And he lists them all again. Then after he lists them, he goes, and now we're going to take that knowledge and make it wisdom and learn how to navigate the difficulties about what we're about to enter into the land. So here's what Deuteronomy uh, 5 said, the commandments, Deuteronomy 6. Moses is now saying in our text today in verses 13 and, and 14 that TV read, it is the Lord your God you shall fear. And what's he talking about? Shall have no other gods before you. He's now talking about what that means. We're about to go into the land. Who are you going to fear? Are you going to fear their gods? Are you going to look like grasshoppers in their sight? Or are you going to fear your God? Are you going to have no other gods? Those are just created beings. Or are you going to reverence the creator? Is he all powerful? He's, he, there's no other gods before him. Not just sing about it, but are you going to now walk it out? Because we sang about it today. We sang about there is no other God besides God. We sang that he alone is our peace. He alone. But then when you get out there, it's hard, right? You start walking in it and you start fearing a lot of other things. And you look to a lot of other things. And Moses saw that coming. He's trying to train him as best he can. And here's one of the threats that he saw right before he mentions our text in Deuteronomy 6, 13 and 14. Here's the previous two verses in 10 through 12. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to give you, with great and good cities that you did not build and houses full of all good things that you did not fill and cisterns that you did not dig and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It's that easy. It's that easy to forget who brought you, where you came from, that you're happy and full. I did this myself. I don't really think about God much anymore. Moses is warning them. He's not just giving the commandments, but when you get there and you get happy and satisfied in all of those blessings that God brought you into, are you going to remember him or just forget him? How do you go forward and not forget the Lord? Our catechism says first that we know and trust God as the only true and living God. Second, that we avoid all idolatry and do not worship God improperly. What are they doing if they get into the land and forget the Lord? They're not worshiping him properly. They're not giving him credit for what they have. For their blessings. They're forgetting God. 
and all that they've gone through. It's that easy. It's that quick. Moses is saying, don't forget the Lord. Don't forget to acknowledge Him. Don't forget to give thanks for Him when you're there and you have everything now. Because that's going to happen because God promised it and He's going to give it to you. But when you get it, don't forget. That's what the first, second commandment means. Don't forget Him. Avoid idolatry. Don't make the worship of you having the comforts that God gave you your God. Don't make that an idol. What? Don't I have I thought that was carving something and you know making some thing cow like we did and we worshiped it and said that's the God that got us out of Egypt. God swallowed all those people in the ground, they're gone. No, Moses is saying it's not just you know carving an image and worshiping that cow, it's getting there and being satisfied with all that you have and forgetting the Lord, not giving thanks to Him anymore, not realizing it is Him that has brought. So what's happening here? It's almost like an idol of success, isn't it? You know, it's like that's what he's trying to explain. I listened to some older preachers, uh, you know, clear back in the late 1800s, Charles Spurgeon. Uh, I listened to another after him. He was a preacher there in, in London, pretty big. They call him the Prince of Preachers, really great preacher. Then after him was born a man named Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, and uh, he preached for a good 30. He was an actual doctor, first of all. He was a medical doctor, and then God called him into ministry, and he became the preacher in the early 1900s all the way into the mid-1900s in London after Charles Spurgeon, but he was at Westminster Chapel preaching faithfully God's word. And he got old, and he got sick, and someone came to interview him. And Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, man, you were on, you were in London, you were at the best press church, you know, and just, you know, you, you had it all. People were listening to you, and you know, people were begging you from all over the world to come and preach from you. Now you're laying in this bed, dying, no one even cares about you. No one's even asked about you for years. How's that make you feel? How are you coping with the stress of being out of the swim of things? You're no longer important in what you gave your whole life to in ministry. Lloyd-Jones responded in the words of Luke 10, verse 20. Do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And he went on to say, this is the sin of more than a few successful pastors and no fewer successful lay people in the world. While they're proud of their orthodoxy, knowing the right answers to the right questions, while entrusted with a valid mission that God gave them, they have serotypously turned to idolizing something different, success. Few false, false gods are so deceitful. When faced with such temptations, it is desperately important to rejoice for the best reasons, and there is none better than that our sins are forgiven. My name is written. I'm still in the swim of things. Because God's own gracious initiative has written my name in heaven. What's valuable to you? What is successful to you? 
smart, you know, James wasn't worried about being nice to him, I think. He was longing to be with his Father in heaven. Charles Spurgeon said some things in our uh, commentary this week that were similarly good, talking about other idols of success. He said, man fashions for himself a God after his own liking. He makes to himself, if not out of wood or stone, yet out of what he calls his own conscience or his cultured thoughts, a deity to his taste. He will not be too severe, maybe, or his iniquities dealt with too harshly out of strict justice. He rejects God as he is, and he elaborates other gods, such as he thinks that the divine one ought to be. Spurgeon goes on to say, our business is not to invent a God, but to obey the one Lord who has revealed himself in Scripture, the Scriptures of truth. God's revealed himself. But many times we take out the pages that we don't like and we focus on the things that we do like. What I like about the challenge of walking through a catechism is it doesn't give you that choice to just focus on the great text that I want to preach from and I want to show you this aspect of God. But it makes you look at the harder aspects of God. It makes you delve into texts that maybe you would not like to delve into. makes you preach on texts and teach on texts that the Bible says and reveals is as God. But maybe I just like this one aspect of God and I would like to always emphasize that myself and to everybody else that I know without all the others. Tim Keller says a lot of the same things in his work on idols and book on counterfeit gods. He says an idol is anything more important to you than God. It's what it is, but a lot of us go would probably admit I don't have anything more important than God. Israel would have said that all along in the depths of their sin and depravity and Elijah challenging them on uh, the, 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 the prophets of Baal they would have said no 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 God you know any of them we don't understand the subtleness of deceit but when we look at scripture it penetrates when we look at the depths of the law and the commandments and what they require Moses is saying watch out when you get there that you don't forget God an idol is anything more important to you than God Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. What do you think about? What do you imagine about? What's, what's there? Anything that's there more than God, you might want to look at that. Well, how, how important is that in your life? Why is it so important that you think about it more than God? Anything that you seek to give, to give you what only God can give you. Anything that is so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. If I lost this, kind of what they were asking Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, you've lost this, how bad do you feel? Challenging him, losing that, being in the swim of things, how much does that hurt you? That doesn't hurt me. My name is written in heaven. That's not my success. My success, my value is that he knows me. That's what we sang about. My true value has been secured at the cross. That's where I get my value from. That's how I measure my value. 
just by what Jesus did for me at the cross. That's who I am. That's my identity. And if I lose this, yes, it will hurt. But it will not hurt like losing God. He is my ultimate treasure. But what if you lost something, that challenge? And you said life wouldn't be much worth going on living anymore. That's something you value. Like you should treasure and value God. It's a God before your God. It's an idol that you're made. Maybe subtle, crept in. That's what the word of God does. That's what the commandments do. They dig into you deep. You're like, no, I already know it. I already know what's said and I already know the answer. No, you don't. You need to ponder the depths of it and start walking it out through scripture and see how those commandments are lived out. Moses said, you're about to live them out now. You're about to go in and see nations serving other gods, being blessed sometimes maybe when you're not. What's the challenge going to be? Serve God, trust him, or turn to the Baals and serve them. They seem to be, you know, doing good. You're going to be challenged with your God coming up in your nation. We're challenged with other gods right here, right now, right here in our church, right here in our nation, looking around. But it's subtle. It's not carved images, not big gold cows saying bow and worship. goes on and says that the incomplete joys of this world will never satisfy the human heart. They'll never satisfy. These idols will never satisfy the human heart. This is the Holy Spirit. He illumines our minds. He leads us to God. Reveals who the Father and the Son are. And we realize that beside Him there is none. There is no God besides him. There is no God above him. They're all created beings. He's a creator of all things. There is none that compare to him. That's what the Holy Spirit keeps saying right there. That subtle little thing that creep in. The, bri- the, bu- the biblical prophets, even after Israel and walking it all out, they warned of the same things. Isaiah 44, 6 through 9 says, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and the last. Beside me there is no God. Pretty powerful. Who is like me, God is speaking. Let him proclaim, let him declare, and set it before me. Since I appointed an ancient people, let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Can anyone else do that? Let him come forward and do it, because I do it. And he says, fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? Is there no rock? Is there no rock? I know not any. And then he goes into the folly of idolatry. All who fashion idols are nothing, and they bring, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. God is establishing himself through the prophets as the only God, and there are no gods besides him. I think specifically applicable to the children of Israel and what Moses is warning them from, Jesus also 
confronts the idols of money and possessions. In Luke 18, he tells the story of a man approaching him, asking him what he must do for eternal life, and Jesus talks to him about the commandments. Commandments are still relevant. And yet, he feels something still lacking to justify himself. He continues to ask questions. Jesus, in verse 22, says, when Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. This person, Jesus saw, what his treasure was above God, what his idol was that he wasn't willing to give up. He wasn't aware of it. I've kept them all. I don't have anything above God. I haven't broken the first commandment, but when Jesus challenges him, he can't do it. It reveals his idol. In other places, Jesus does the same thing. He says, uh, a lot of us, for a while, it was a motto, uh, it's like motivating people to get more and more and a consumeristic American mentality. Uh, a bumper sticker came out, the one who dies with the most toys wins. Revealing our consumeristic mentality. And Jesus confronted that back in his day in, in Luke 12. Uh, he says, take care, be on your guard against all covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Jesus says, your life does not consist. We believe, you know, he who dies with the most toys wins. But it does not. Your life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. Jesus told them a parable to help make this clear. He said, the land of a rich man produced plentiful. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. Now notice he's not including God in any of this. God, you've blessed me. God, I remember you and my blessing. God, he's forgotten God. He's not included in any of his plans. He's not included in any of his blessings that God has brought him. I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store all my grain and all my goods, and I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night, your soul is required of you, and the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? Question mark. So, is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Now, he's teaching something there. It's not bad to work hard. It's not bad to have a retirement. It's not bad to, to enjoy the hard work and your labors and a good retirement that you've worked for. He's not saying that. He's saying this man laid up treasure for himself and was not rich towards God. And if you look at rich people in the Bible, like Abraham, he was always trusting God. Lot, Lot have whatever you want, man. Which land do you want? Just choose, because God's going to bless me wherever I go. And I'm going to get more. And so he chose the fertile, the, the land. The, he ended up down by Sodom and Gomorrah, but it didn't turn out a really great thing. But a lot of people like that land. But God still just blessed Abraham with more and more wealth, more and more wealth. Job was wealthy. When God stripped everything from him, what happened? Was he torn? Was he hurt? Yeah, he was hurt. But did he forsake God? Were those things his greatest treasure? No. Job said, though you slay me, God, I will believe in you. And we still talk about Job today. 
and then God made him even wealthier than he was before. So great wealth. But was he rich towards God? Yes. So the key is, is it an idol? Is your wealth an idol? Is your possessions an idol? And that's what Jesus is confronting with these people. He's, con- he's confronting that it can be. He's never saying wealth is bad. He's saying not being generous toward God is bad. It's having wealth as an idol is bad. What is bad is forgetting God and not honoring him as God and having no other God beside him. And if it's wealth and possessions, sell it all. Give it to the poor. Have you neglected the poor? You forgot about them? God hasn't. He's very near to the fatherless and the orphan. What is bad is laying up treasure for yourself and not being rich towards God. He goes on and says that. Seek first the kingdom. Kingdom of God and all of his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. God will take care of you. God will be put him first. Don't have any other gods. Lord, the true and living God. We see in Romans 1, the wrath of God revealed from heaven. And we see it because in verse 21 of chapter 1, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him as God. You see, they're not properly worshiping God. They're not honoring God. That's what, when, this, when you get into this law of what it requires in these commandments, it's are you honoring God? Are you giving thanks to God? And, and uh, Paul is confronting that no, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. What did they do? They became futile in their thinking, foolish. Their hearts, foolish hearts were darkened. Romans 1, goes, they were claiming to be wise. They became fools. What did they do? They exchanged the glory of the immortal God, the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. See, if you won't make an idol of a golden cow, you'll make it of a man. They're, they're created in our hearts to worship. And, and, and men will, and human beings, people will worship something. They'll worship possessions. They'll position honors. They'll, they'll worship some other uh, created thing. And that can be other human beings. That's what people will worship when you don't worship God. And what this leads to in Romans is they exchange the truth about God for a lie and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. And then you have God, the creator, that we will worship and exchange that to worship the creature. This is what happens and it leads to devastating sinful effects that Paul goes on to explain from everything to dishonorable passions to debased minds to 
envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. They know God's righteous decree. What do they know? And yet, they know that those who are practicing evil, evil things deserve to die, but they not only do them, but give hearty approval to those who practice them. This is where breaking the commandments leads. It leads to all other kinds of sins. So first, we need to know and trust God as the only true and living God. And second, we need to avoid all idolatry. And we do not want to worship God improperly. And thirdly, we want to treat God's name with fear and reverence, honoring also his word and his works. So you dig into that. In our commentary, John Lynn quoted from the New City Catechism commentary. He said, the first commandment tells us that we are to have no other gods but God. He is to be the exclusive object of our worship, the ultimate object of our love and desire. The second commandment is similar and tells us that we are not to worship God according to our own conception of God, but what the, what the Bible calls idolatry. We must worship God according to who he is and not according to what we want him to be. In other words, in other words do not worship false gods and do not worship God falsely. But he leads into the third one, where we are now, and he says that we, that we treat God's name with fear and reverence, honoring also his word and his works. And he says some very relevant things there about that. And as I studied that, well, what do you require in your name, not taking the Lord's name in vain? A lot of people understand and get, which is true, that you don't use the Lord's name as a cuss word. We were talking about that in a men's Bible study on Tuesday morning. It's interesting that when uh, people smash their thumb, they don't say, oh, Buddha, or something. It's like they always take Jesus' name. There's something inherently rebellious that we talked about last week where we hate God. We hate the true God. We hate the true Lord, Jesus Christ. That's who we want to blaspheme. There's no blasphemous to a creature, a false God. But let's blaspheme and take the true living God's name in vain. Let's make it empty. Let's make it a byword. Let's make it vain and empty and mean nothing other than a byword, a cuss word. Or a damning cursing word. That's pretty commonplace. So yes, it does mean that. We're like, I already know what that means. Yeah, I'm not doing that and trying not to do that. But it goes more. It goes into more subtle ways. Let's look at Simon Kish. In the catechism, in, uh, another catechism, the Heidelberg Catechism, this is on the Lord's Day 36. It goes all into just what is required in the third commandment going to delve into each one of them yes we're not to blaspheme we're to abuse the name of god we're not to speak irreverently about god or sacred things we're not to cuss curse use his name that way we are not to perjure ourselves un in taking unnecessary oaths because he went in to say do not swear falsely in my name 
what did that mean when Moses told the people that? Rather, we must use the holy name of God with fear and reverence so that we might confess him, that we might call upon him, that we might praise him in all of our words and works. You can blaspheme the name of the Lord, not just in your words, but in your works. What do your works say? What do what you're doing uh, cause you not to be fearing and reverencing the name of God, blaspheming with your actions? Well, I never thought of that. Yeah, you haven't thought of a lot of things. Neither have I. That's what the law does. It digs. When you want to meditate on it, am I holy? Am I righteous? Am I good? Have I kept the commandments? I think I kept them pretty well. And you waste that money. Uh, sell all you have and give it to the poor. You go, oh, well, maybe I do have an idol. I can't do that. Well, what's there? What's there in our lives? What's in our imagination? What's in our motivation? Challenging. Psalm 99, 1 through 5 says, The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He sits upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. That's what his name is meant for. We praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he, our king and his might. Love justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness for Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Holy is he. You guys did good. Man, the worship team was beautiful today. Singing, worshiping. People were led in their worship of God and their exaltation of his name. Challenge the Romans after one that I read earlier, Romans 2, 21 through 24. He's talking about the commandments, and he says, Why do you preach against stealing? And then you steal. If you say that the one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. And then he says, For it is written, The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. This challenge is about hypocrisy. It's about us saying one thing and not doing it. And what happens when people see that? They go, oh, yeah, they're just all all tight. Yeah, they get in and they get trouble and they turn to God and then they they end up going and doing all the same things. The, The name of God isn't reverenced. It isn't feared. People don't tremble before God. So they look many times at other believers and Christians and they blaspheme the name of God. They make God's name empty because it looks empty in their lives. Looks empty and worthless. It doesn't actually have an effect in their lives. They don't actually live by it and walk it. Oh yeah, they say it, but do they live by it? In all these ways, Paul is challenging them with their examples fall short. And this is where John Lennon's third commandment says, uh, his commentary says, we are not to misuse or mistreat the name of God. 
We know God's name describes his character, the essence of his being, which is why he told Moses that his, his name is I am. In other words, God is saying my name is that I am self-existent, I am eternal. So to not misuse the name of God doesn't merely mean that there are certain words that we can or cannot say. It means more than that. It means that when we speak the name of God, whether through our words or lifestyles, we are fully to honor and respect who he is. Ooh, wow, it's not just saying a word blasphemes, but looking at our lifestyles. Is our lifestyle blaspheme the name of God? And Paul is challenging his people especially his Jewish nation, like the Gentiles are blaspheming the name of God as they look at one another and say these things that have to do with that. And the name of God is blasphemed. The third commandment is being broken because they see your lifestyle. And in Colossians 3, he challenges the Christians there in verse 17. He says, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything to the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God. That's revering the name of God in everything you do, in everything you say. That's how demanding the commandment is. You give thanks to the Lord. You give thanks to God, the Father, through Jesus Christ. The third commandment is so insistent on honoring and respecting his name and his character. Why is that? It's because God created us with a desire that only he can fulfill a desire for him. If we are always trying to change who God is or replace him with something else, we'll never be at peace. We'll never experience the true comfort, true significance, or true joy. We'll never be whole. But if God is at the center of our lives, not another God or a revised version of God, but the true and living God will truly be at peace. This is precisely why Augustine wrote, you've made us for yourself and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. Idols will never give you that rest. They will never satisfy you. And the Ten Commandments come and they're countercultural to everything the culture is telling us to want, to create, to have gods, to have idols, to have something, make for yourself, form for yourself, choose for yourself. But the commandments in these first three stand as a countercultural um, uh, law written still uh, in us and all around us, requiring that the carnal person must submit to the law of God that doesn't change, still requiring what it has always required, that you have no other God, that you don't make an idol, and that you revere the name of God. And here's what the law does and how it works and the commandments work. Uh, Romans 7, verse 12 says, The law is holy, the commandment is holy. What you're saying today, that those commandments are holy, and it goes on and says, and righteous and good. The commandments are holy and righteous and good. Yes, they are. And the problem is not with them. The problem is with us in keeping them. So what do they do? 
Romans 7, 13 says. So did that which was good bring death to me, not being able to keep it? And he says, by no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good. It was sin in us that couldn't keep the law, rebelled against the law. And he says, in order that sin might be shown to be sin. That's what the law does. It shows sin to truly be sin. And through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. You can't even measure the depth of your depravity with the law. It'll measure it to depths that you never even imagined you were committing. You think or imagine you might have kept one of those halfway decently. You didn't keep it very decently at all. And that's what the holy nature of God is. We can't stand in his glorious presence. Moses says, let me stand in it. He had to hide him in the cleft of the rock, put his hand on him, pass by him, and let him see the rear passing of his glory. Otherwise, it would have just killed him. The holiness of God is something that we have forgotten. We have forgotten the Lord. And we've forgotten the depravity of our own sin. And that's what the law does. It shines on our own sin and says, not as good as you think you are. And that's what Paul's saying in Romans. The commandment might be, become sinful beyond measure. It might point out your sin commandments are holy and righteous and good but sin in me cannot keep them and the commandments reveal how sin in me is ugly and sinful Jesus said nothing hidden that will not be made manifest Luke 8 17 nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light think, think about when everything is known think about that's what Jesus is saying to think about for nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. That's Jesus' words. We need God's mercy, don't we? We need a Savior, don't we? This is the law is crying out. Your sins are many. But what? His mercy is more. He's got a greater love and compassion and mercy for you than all your sin combined. His love for you and his mercy for you and the, the depths of his love that went to reach a sinful creature. But I wasn't that sinful. That's, that's what we're looking at today. Were you? Like knowing how sinful you are. Like why is that so important to you, Bobby? Why do you think that? Why do you want the law to shine on, you know, and for me to really get, you know? Because that's what Jesus says over and over again. He goes to a Pharisee's house and he's in there eating at the Pharisee's house. And, and this woman comes in and stands behind him and they, they laid on their side, so behind him at the feast, kind of right there. And, and she's weeping and crying, and his tears are falling out on her feet. And she ends up hugging his feet, and she breaks his alabaster and hugging him up. And the, and the Pharisees are nothing but, he's not a prophet. They don't even know how sinful this woman is. That's what they're seeing. We're really good people. We haven't broken the commandments very much. And this person is just a really sinner, and Jesus is letting her Touch him. He ain't a prophet. And Jesus knows what they're thinking. And he says, what have you done for me since I came in your house, Simon? Well, at first he yeah, just asked him, can I tell you something? Can I tell you a story? <laughs> you know, and, you know, asked him, he goes, yes, teacher. Yeah, let me know. And he tells this parable about this man who owed this debt. And he owed this big debt. 
500 denarii, and he was forgiven. And then this other person owed a debt, and it was 50 denarii, you know, much a lot less. And he was forgiven. And he says, Simon, who do you think is going to love that master more? And he goes, I suppose the one that was forgiven the 500. And Jesus goes, you answered right, Simon. You're still trying to reach this guy. Hypocrite, lover himself, self-righteous, good, better than this woman crying. Jesus has compassion on him. Still trying to reach him, stuck, you know, self-righteousness. And he answers correctly. He goes, you answered right, Simon. He goes, Eric, you answered right. And he says, see this woman? See her? See her, what she's done? I don't want you thinking in your heart. She's, she knows what she's been forgiven of. She knows her debt. She knows. She's like the 500 denarii. You're like the 50. You don't know. See, that's, that's what the commandments shining their light and you digging into them and saying, I've fallen short, Lord. I blasphemed your name. How many times did I do it? And I didn't even know it in my life or my words. You go, I don't, I don't want to get into that. That's wrong. We shouldn't do that. I can't repent and get on my knees and confess my sins. But this, this, no. Let it weigh on you. Let it weigh on you because the more it weighs on you, the more you'll be like that woman who goes, I understand your grace. I get it. I get your mercy is more. Or we can be like the other one that goes, eh, definitely haven't sinned as bad as her. That's what Jesus is saying in that parable. That's what he's saying about all of us. It's like, get the reality of the commandments and let them shine on you. And realize the greatness of the grace of God in your life. Amen? Amen. We're going to take communion together. betrayed he took bread that's what he did he gave thanks to God he gave thanks to the Father he acknowledged the Father everything was from the Father everything pointed toward him he didn't do anything without seeing the Father do it first he was giving thanks he was honoring God he was teaching us always give thanks look up everything good perfect and all of his gifts come down from above from the father of lights and lifted up the bread and he said the bread from heaven the bread from the father and he gave thanks to the father and acknowledged him and then he revealed the bread as his very body and he said this is my body take and eat of it in jesus jesus name we must say amen let's partake of this bread and give thanks to god
all that is mine is yours. And we only stand in you. And on that day when the secrets of our hearts are revealed, God shines his light on all of the hidden things. You alone and your name alone and the name of Jesus alone is our salvation. Nothing in this world. All in Jesus and his name. Thank you for being our big brother. Stand with us. And gives us his, uh, your robe of righteousness and covers all of our sins. We thank you that your mercy is new. We thank you for this cup that you raised because this is the cup of a new covenant. Given no longer in a lamb, no longer in a fatted calf no longer in a pure and spotless lamb that you offer, but I'm offering my very body and my very own blood once and for all. Thank you, God, that you sent your son. Thank you, Jesus, that you completed the task. And thank you that you lifted the cup and said, this is the cup of a new covenant in my blood given for the remission of sins. I will obliterate and wipe out your sins and God the Father will see you through the, my blood that completely cleans and makes you white as snow. And we thank you, Lord, for the cup of a new covenant. And we partake today in faith, saying we do this and remember your death until you come. Let us partake together. Remember to give him worship and praise, his name alone.